I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The right, in some ways because it is less encumbered by principle in this moment, has found it easier to do this attention stuff, to kind of grab people by the lapels of their emotions. And the left has the responsibility complex. There's almost a feeling that commanding attention is dirty and that one shouldn't kind of descend into the tawdriness of trying to command attention. And so my message there is grow up and try to command attention because if you can't command attention in this moment, it does not matter how good or principled your ideas are, no one will know about them. I'm Sarah Wilson, and this is Wild, a show where we talk with the biggest minds in the world about the ideas that can help us love and save our one wild and precious life together on this planet. It goes without saying there is a lot going on in the world. There's a lot of noise, a lot of pain, and a lot of division. There are the big, real, tangible issues, the ones that are hitting the headlines, such as the beyond horrific conflict in Israel and Palestine, the voice referendum wash-up, what is happening ahead of the US election next year, and name this week's climate calamity. And then there is what's happening around all of this in the political squabbling about the calamities, about the horrors. This is a very real second crisis, this noise, this infighting, the social media slinging matches, the the spouting of conspiracy-sounding theories when things get challenging. It's a whole other level of despair to contend with. When I try to make sense of this layer of despair, which we might call the mass polarisation of the globe, a number of issues arise for me, and maybe they do for you too. So progressive, nuanced, reasonable thought and approaches are increasingly being drowned out. And this is because they're being hijacked by super base behaviours and tactics from the far right and the far left, which are working to drag the middle, the ambivalent or undecided voters and participants to extreme polarising and often neo-fascist ideas. If you're someone who believes in progressive values or if you're an activist in any kind of way, You can feel like you're in an impossible bind. You try to go high when they go low. You try to promote decent behaviour, but it gets you nowhere. And so we're seeing many changemakers, activists and politicians kind of give up. They're like, well, damned if I do, damned if I don't. I can't switch this middle base and people will never change. American journalist and political pundit Anand Giridharas was feeling the same, and he felt he needed to address this cynicism, in big part because he could see this writing off by the left leading to the collapse of democracy. 
Anand is a former foreign correspondent and columnist for the New York Times. He now is the publisher of the Substack The Inc. and is a regular on-air political analyst for MSNBC. He's also the author of the international bestseller Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World. But in his latest book, The Persuaders, at the front lines of the fight for hearts, minds and democracy, he basically investigates a way for, well, the left or progressive side of whatever issue you might be talking about to not give up and instead become effective persuaders. This is a very right now conversation to be having in the wake of the Australian Voice referendum result and as we're all trying to cognitively and emotionally fathom both what is happening in Israel and Palestine and what is happening to the humans around us, including our leaders, who are wading in on the issue. I know many listening here are probably also despairing, writing off being able to have decent persuasive conversations again that are not based on misinformation, biases and fear and, yes, loathing. Anand does not mince words, and his thesis is not your standard effective communication manual. I suspect many of you will be surprised and maybe relieved to hear some of the techniques and mindsets he advocates. Okay, Anand, it's so wonderful to have you join us here on WILD to talk about your book and your thesis around persuaders and what we can all learn from them. Now, look, my understanding is that you came to write this book about the importance of persuasion and it pivots from a career-long commitment to democracy. Do you mind just to start off with, talk us through the connection between living in a democracy and persuasion? Well, thank you so much for having me. You know, I think that connection is crucial. If you think about most of our ancestors, whether you are Australian or American or living in France or wherever else, if you go back far enough, the way communities made group decisions for most of human history was quite non-democratic. It was, you know, some guy in the village or some king or some village chieftain or some tribal leader. For most of history, the idea that regular people and, and in fact, every adult should participate in group decisions would have seemed absurd to most of our ancestors. And so they did it in this kind of other, often quite authoritarian, centralized way. And then about 300 or so years ago in philosophy and then in practice, there started to be this new idea that actually it makes much more sense and it's more righteous for everybody to participate in choosing the future in a community. What how do we, do we drain the lake in November every year or do we not? Do we let these people in or do we not? Do we have schools or just kind of let people figure it out? These were all decisions that communities had to make before and after the rise of democracy. But the idea of democracy was the idea that we'd be better off somehow if everybody participated in a 24-7, 365, rollicking conversation and that somehow this would produce better outcomes. You can imagine how crazy this idea must have seemed to many people at the time. And I think it's one of the most remarkable things in the history of humankind that this idea turned out to be true. This idea that we should all haggle about everything all the time and that this actually produces better decisions, produces peace more often than, than other models, produces human well-being more often. It, it's just a remarkable thing. And at the heart of this notion of democracy, of us choosing the future together, is the notion of persuasion, is the notion 
that if you and I and everybody else are going to participate in choosing the future together, we must be able to talk to each other. We must be able to have certain kind of faith that if I make a good argument to you, if I present a kind of important fact to you, you might be persuaded, you might listen and, and go the way I think we should go and that I should be open to you, that I might be willing to go the way you want to go. At the heart of this notion of human beings choosing the future instead of having it handed to them is the notion that we should be persuadable, we should be interested in trying to persuade others, and that we should have a kind of openness. And I wrote the book because I was despairing that that openness to persuasion, the faith in the, our ability to persuade or be persuaded was collapsing in this age of division and that it was dragging down with it the very idea of democracy. Yeah, I, I really love that connection that you make and it stopped me in my tracks because I am probably a member of the uh, progressive left and the point that you make is that so many people, activists, leaders, but even just concerned citizens who tend to be on the left, have almost sort of given up on this idea of being able to persuade the middle, you know, the, the great unwashed over to progressive ways of thinking to change. You know, that's generally the space of the left. And you make the point that the right have always been good at persuasion. The left almost seem to think that, well, that's just not how we do things. So, you know, the Democrats in the US, where you're from, Labor Party in the UK and Australia, tends to deal with facts. We deliver facts and people in the middle, the swinging voters or the ambivalent, they'll vote the right way if the facts are delivered, you know, correctly. Have I got that kind of roughly right in terms of how the left and the right view persuasion? Yeah, and, I, and I'll speak mostly to the American example because that's what I had in mind and was reporting on, but I think it is true elsewhere. You know, where the phenomenon I saw is that the far right in the United States, and the far right is increasingly now the dominant force on the right in general, the very extreme right is sort of flying the plane, in many ways is built on a very exclusionary vision. However, it has a very inclusionary political approach to achieving an exclusionary future, okay? What I mean by that is the world it actually wants would leave a lot of people out, right? The policies it would actually enact would, would leave a lot of people out, would be bad for, you know, women and people of color and, you know, various others, disabled folks, LGBT folks, et cetera. However, the way it goes about achieving that exclusionary agenda is actually very come as you are. It's sort of a movement that is very interested in converts. You know, you don't have something like Rupert Murdoch's, by the way, thank you so much, Australia, for sending oh, you're, you're welcome. to us. You're welcome. Incredible, <laughs> incredible contribution. You know, Rupert Murdoch's Fox News and other kind of affiliated empires is a persuasion machine. The right really believes that there are potential converts out there who can be pulled into the movement and, and acts accordingly. And what I was observing on the left was a kind of fatalism about other people that was, you know, essentially a kind of anti-persuasive style, an anti-persuasive belief. And it shows up in many different forms. It shows up in vaccine skeptics, like, don't bother. You know, it shows up in a lot of the discourse around race. You know, white people are too invested in their privileges. They're never going to change. All we can do is just drive up, you know, voter turnout for people of color, et cetera. It shows up in you know the sense that like people who voted for Donald Trump are dupes and brainwashes, they'll never change their mind. Well, like many of them did, 
actually, the second time. You know, it shows up in a kind of feeling that you need to prove your bona fides to be on the left, to be a progressive. If you don't use the right terms around this or that, you got to sit in the outside waiting room of the movement. And so while the right is pressing an exclusionary agenda, but behaving in an inclusionary way, in an inviting way to pull people into that vision, the left is pushing an incredibly inclusionary vision of the future, but often comes off as exclusionary on the road to that future. And the book in many ways is an intervention in that contradiction. Yeah. You've touched a little bit on what the right get right, so to speak, in terms of being able to tell stories and play on emotions and so on. And we'll drill down into all of that in a moment. But why don't we just talk a little bit more about what the left are getting wrong? Is it because there's this sort of almost Puritan idea of how politics should be done? We shouldn't be getting caught up in these stories and playing on people's emotion or is it that the left tends to be too fixated on going high, you know, when the rest are going low? And so, you know, we can't join people in, in this rabble of noise, you know, on social media, and therefore we'll just throw our hands in the air. I mean, you raise a few reasons in, in your book. Could you talk us through a few of the things that, yes, the left, the progressive movements, whether it's the climate movement, whether it's, you know, the feminist movement, what are they getting wrong? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's in a moment where the stakes have not ever been higher in terms of democracy itself on the line, truth itself on the line, these kinds of things. Really having a a strong power building ability is crucial for kind of the pro-democracy movement in general. And there's a kind of a few areas where based on the reporting of the persuaders, I think there's a real there's a real deficit. So I'll just kind of rattle them off and, and then we can go deeper into any of them. You know, I think one is around attention. In I mean, you have this in Australia with your media, we have it here in the United States, where the old days of thirty million people watching the same thing and reacting to it is those days are gone. Right? We live in a fragmented media age. Nothing breaks through very easily, right? And in that media age, the ability to command attention in politics has become absolutely crucial, right? And so if you think about Donald Trump, very good at that. If you think about on the left, AOC, very, very good at that. But I think in general, the right, in some ways, because it is less encumbered by principle in this moment, has found it easier to do this attention stuff, to do the stunt stuff to kind of grab people's by the lapels of, of their emotions. And the left has what one of the characters in the book I write about, Anant Shankar Osorio, calls the responsibility complex. There's almost a feeling that commanding attention is dirty. And so as you were saying, you know, be sober, speak through the facts, have charts, have plans, have policies, and that one shouldn't kind of descend into the tawdriness of trying to command attention. And so my message there is grow up and try to command attention. Because if you can't command attention in this moment, it does not matter how good or small d democratic or principled your ideas are, no one will know about them. You know, I think another major thing that I critiqued and and advocated in the inverse is this notion of making meaning. It's very, very important to understand that voters actually are not fully baked, right? Voters are often more like dough than bread. And it is often through the political process, through hearing arguments and watching the news and then making a decision about voting, particularly the more undecided types of people, of whom there is still a large number, that people kind of form their understanding of the world, right? That's not often how we think of voters. We think of voters as having a certain view of the world. We don't think of them as acquiring a view of the world 
by participating in politics. But it's true. Probably not me and you who have maybe read more and we're interested in these issues and we work. this is our work and life. But for the average voter, hearing what Donald Trump is telling you about immigration is how you might find out about the issue of immigration that we're having right now. Right? Once you understand that, you understand the role of an actor in politics as being to help people make meaning of what is going on, not just to you know, offer a policy solution, but help them take the raw data of their life, the things they're perceiving and feeling, and put them into a frame, right? So yes, you may be noticing that meat and vegetables are more expensive at the grocery store. That's not a story. That's a data point. Making meaning of it is why are they more expensive? Are they more expensive because Joe Biden's a terrible president? Are they more expensive because Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine and set off a whole bunch of chain events around the world that made things more expensive and we all need to pull together and stand up for democracy and sometimes that means sacrificing? What is the story of why the tomatoes and the beef is more expensive at the market? Voters don't have those stories in their heads. And one of the things I advocate is help voters make meaning, don't just offer them policies. You know, last few quickly, like meet voters where they are. Do not judge and sneer at people because they don't know the right terms. They don't know what white privilege is because they never learned about it in school. They don't quite understand the new gender stuff. Like be self-confident enough to meet people where they are and then pull them in towards you. Pick fights is another one that I talk about. You know, it, it's very related to what you said around going high and going low. You know, it's really, really important to be able to answer aggression with aggression. One can keep it so classy that one is you know, now keeping it classy in an authoritarian society. It, it's okay to pick worthy and righteous fights and clarifying fights. And the last thing I would say is this notion of home, which came up very, very clearly in the reporting from multiple people. Another word would be belonging. I think pro-democracy parties, progressive forces around the world are quite illiterate on the question of providing a kind of political home for people as opposed to policy offerings and campaigns. A home is a place you feel safe and comfortable, right? A home is a place where you're with your people. Belonging is a kind of transcendent, almost bodily experience that is different from, I like that tax plan. And the right, again, is very good at providing political homes, you know, hunting clubs and homeschooling networks and church communities that are enormous in the United States, et cetera. And I think the left has kind of not really invested in IRL homes, where if you are part of this movement, you're not just voting for this or that, you're hanging out, you're grilling together, you're seeing each other, you're having each other's back when times get hard. There's almost no national level effort to think about the pro-democracy movement in the United States, giving people a sense of home. And I, I said last, but, but the, the genuine last is I would say telling a better story. You cannot win in this era if you're not telling a better story. And again, I think there's a common theme in everything I'm saying, which has to do with con like a kind of condescension towards these kinds of activities. Everything I'm talking about is about kind of connecting with people at the more emotional, kind of reflexive, even reptile brain area of life. You can't just recite policies. You have to tell people a story of the country. Why is a country going through what it's going through? Who are the people arrayed against that thing? Why are they doing that? And where do you want to go? Where do you want to go? Why, you know, if you're an American and you're, you're kind of scared that your kids are learning a bunch of new race and gender stuff in school that you didn't learn and kind of scares you, that's normal. It's actually normal. I don't think it makes you a bad person to be scared that your kids are learning stuff that you don't quite understand. When the right tells a story about how this is some giant conspiracy to brainwash your kids, 
they're taking this raw data of your life and they're arraying it into a politics that's very dangerous. We should be telling a different story. I would love for Joe Biden to actually be explaining to people, as an old white man, he's in a unique position to explain to people, here's why we're changing up what your kids are learning in school. We are building the most tolerant, humane generation in human history. And doing that requires that we're going to teach them a couple of things that you all didn't learn back in the era of pinching your secretary's ass at the office and calling her sugar and honey and sweetheart and you know having black people shine your shoes but not work in your office. Yeah, we're teaching your kids some new things because we want to build an incredible, humane, tolerant generation. These are your kids. You know how amazing they are. We believe how amazing they could be. And that's why we're doing it. I have not heard one American politician tell you the story I just told you. The why of it. So story is crucial. It's such a missed opportunity. And I think that's what I really got from your book and from from listening to you and reading some of the stuff you've been writing about over on your Substack, for instance, on all of this, because there is actually a really good news story to be told here. There's a joyous story. And I think the left is feeling like it's just so hard. Why do we have to go and enter this mosh pit with these right wingers, these neo-fascists? And it's not the way that we need to see this. There is a a massive opening to tell a beautiful story. There's something else that you pick up on in terms of what the left do tend to do. And I want to sort of tease it out just slightly. You talk about the way that the left politicians will often offer a watered down version of a conservative policy. And you use the example, for instance, that the left will come out and say, you know, that they offer a weakened version of the right's border control, so, you know, secure the border matter. In Australia, we had turn back the boats, very similar concept. And you make the point, and I, I found this really interesting, that what this actually does is it actually highlights to the middle, you know, to this sort of group of voters who don't really know how they feel about things until they're told a story on it, it stigmatizes the issue. It basically flags, oh, my God, shit, there's, the borders are insecure. Now, if that's the case, they're going to want the RoboCop version of border control. So they're going to turn to the conservative forces. So, so that's something that I do see happen a fair bit. It's happening in my own country on climate policies where there's this sort of compromise meeting in the middle that the left tends to do when they feel like they've got no other avenue to bring along the middle with them. Yeah, are you able to flesh out that a little bit further in terms of the flaw in that approach? It's an error that grows out of a very understandable thing, which is, you know, when people are talking about crime and the right is kind of ginning up fears of of crime, often crime that's not, you know, that's highly exaggerated or whatever, um, the left feels a compulsion to go along. Well, yes, we also are afraid about crime, right? Or there's versions of this around terrorism. There's versions, of, and, and what happens is you end up not articulating your own view. You end up just kind of chasing someone else's frame, right? And so the example I have in the book is again this woman Anat Shankar Osorio, who's a progressive messaging consultant, has actually done great work in Australia. She helped me kind of analyze this moment when there was protests and some amount of political violence in Kenosha, Wisconsin, after the killing, a shooting of, of an unarmed black man. And what happened was the right, you know, stoking these fears and, you know, this is a disaster and whatever. And President Biden, I think, felt compelled to match that energy, right? And so he made an ad about law and order and you know, he's basically lecturing protesters, you know, violence is never the answer, this and that. 
And again, when before I worked on this book, I would have looked at his ad and thought, yeah, it was a decent ad and yeah, you know, violence is not great and good for him to say that. From what Anat kind of helped me understand about politics is that what Joe Biden was really doing there was confirming the kind of moral frame of the right, that political riots are bad and that, you know, there's people out there who, who kind of talk about justice, but they're kind of dangerous. And that you are kind of validating that general frame. And what she said was the missed opportunity was that that same week, there had been a rally called Justice for Jacob. First, there had been a, a protest march and there had been some of this violence, but then there'd been this rally called Justice for Jacob, where these incredible black activists, local group, kind of combined protest and outrage with joy and celebration of life and voter registration and a bouncy castle for kids and grilling. And it was just kind of amazing, like, here's what we're against and here's what we're for. We are for black people getting to live full, healthy, joyous, flourishing lives. We're not defined solely by an anger at police taking that away. We're, we're defined by the desire to have those kind of lives be lived and be inalienable. And that therefore, when things interfere with that, we're angry. But here's our vision. Here's what life looks like if we win, right? And what Anad helped me understand is, first of all, that was just an incredibly effective thing they did and images of it went viral around the world. But it kind of gave a template for what a progressive leader could have said, right? Or what President Biden in that ad could have said, could have, could have showed footage of that dancing and singing and celebration and saying, you know, look, we all want similar things, freedom, you know, voice, our children to have good lives. And sometimes people are taking it away from us and, and dividing us and we can't let that stand. And it would have been a kind of articulation of what he was for rather than him trying to catch up with someone else's kind of mistaken moral frame. Yeah, and it's very much about taking some ownership rather than, as you say, playing this sort of catch-up, second-fiddle, me-tooism and missing, as we were just saying, that opportunity to tell a much better story, you know, a story that humans are really aching for. We, we're wanting that solidity in what is really feeling like quicksand out there. And so people do. I remember watching, you know, the 2016 election and thinking, wow, I can see why Trump's doing so well. You know, he places a line in the sand. It feels sturdy. And in a world which is becoming increasingly uncertain and uncomfortable, uh, people are probably more likely to gravitate to, to these kind of certain stories. And there is that opportunity to tell better certain stories. You've mentioned one of the activists that you've spoken to. You speak to quite a number in the book. I particularly loved some of the, the, the lessons that you picked up from Loretta Ross, She's, who's a veteran activist. And she talks through this idea of not so much replacing a person's ideas or voting preferences, but displacing can you explain the difference there? I know that Loretta explained it to you. How did she explain it to you? Loretta Ross is a just fascinating figure and, and someone who's, you know, a lot of the other activists I write about in the book are younger or middle-aged or younger than that. And Loretta is kind of the elder of the group in the book and, and sort of a mentor to many of the many of the younger activists. And we were talking about persuasion and she said something really striking. She said, you know, if you've been married, you can't even change the mind of someone you love and have, have like invested your life with in many cases, right? So the notion of kind of 
changing people's minds and and getting them to just abandon their preconceptions because you make a good argument is sort of very, it's an uphill battle. What she said was, if you think about what you're doing as trying to replace what someone thinks, you're trying to basically get them to jettison what is in their head right now on an issue and throw it out as kind of day old bread and then ingest what you would like them to have in their head. They're going to sniff the kind of violence of that from a million miles away. It can feel kind of like violent to people. It can feel like you are trying to get rid of something in them and replace it with something in you. And it feels, it doesn't feel like theoretical argumentation. It, it feels like violence to people. And that's why I think, you know, you have such a visceral reaction around some of the racial education that's happening or some of the new gender stuff. People really feel like you're trying to rid the contents of my brain and replace them with something else, right? What she suggests is more viable is attempting to displace rather than replace what is in other people's heads. And what that means is trying to dislodge it a little bit, someone's certainties, trying to just make their certainty a little less of a certainty, trying to create a little bit of doubt or cognitive dissonance in someone, right? That's really, really different from me coming across as trying to replace what's in your head. So let me give you a couple of examples. If we're talking about climate, and by the way, I write about a great Australian cognitive scientist, John Cook, in the book, and John talks about this. If you are a climate denier, and I'm basically coming to you with a, with a kind of vibe of all these facts you say are wrong, here's the true science, et cetera, which is frankly how a lot of us actually operate in these circumstances, your alarms are going to go up, right? Your, your defenses are going to go up. You're not going to be open to a kind of conversation with me about why all the things you think are wrong. What John Cook and others show is somewhat more effective, not always, is to plant doubts in your head about this. So maybe saying to you, you know, it's so interesting that you uh, articulate all these kind of data points. It really reminds me of the same kind of cherry picking of data that was done, you know, in the 70s and 80s around smoking. And it reminds me of just the, this kind of playbook for how wealthy people are really successful, wealthy interests are very successful at kind of tricking decent people like you into believing bullshit data to fulfill their economic interests, okay? Now, those may sound similar, but the second thing is trying to plant a seed in, of doubt in you about the fact that you may be being manipulated. And one of the things that cognitive scientists and others have found is that there's kind of two competing drives in people when it comes to this kind of manipulation and, and disinformation. One drive is to have the world make simple, easy sense. And we all have that. We all want the world to make simple, easy sense, right? The second drive we all have is the desire to not be anybody's dupe, not be anybody's fool, right? If you can play up the second desire, the desire not to be anybody's fool, a little bit, it can start to do that dislodging, that displacing of the first thing, which is the desire to have the world make easy sense. People who have sort of succumbs to a false story because it satiates that desire to have the world make easy sense. They can be led down the beginning of a path if you start to just plant the thought that maybe they've been had. Hi. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You also speak to a former cult member who'd who's turned into a cult deprogrammer. I think, is it Diane Ben-Scotter? And she speaks to this as well, that people do not want to be seen as fools. They don't want to be seen as manipulated. And she looked at all different techniques for deprogramming people out of cult-like thinking and, and yeah, found exactly the same thing. It's about helping people have questions again instead of giving them answers, instead of giving them your answers. I think that's a really the best way that I came to understand what some of your, you know, your incredible persuaders are talking about here is get people asking questions of themselves, of life, of the information that is being fed to them, and then it starts to unpack itself. You know, was there anything that Diane spoke to you about to this effect that really struck you in terms of people don't want to be duped? I'll tell you a little bit of her own story, which she wrote about in her memoir. Really interesting example of what worked on her and what didn't. So she was a cult victim. She was part of the Mooney's cult. And her family staged interventions, try to get her out. They sent these two people kind of under a ruse, try to talk her out. It's a clean, kind of ele- elegant story of two different approaches and one that worked and one that didn't. So first, these deprogrammers were refuting the theology of the Moonies that Diane had absorbed, right? Like the Moonies say this, but in fact this. So the Moonies say this, but in fact yeah, the facts. Bible says this, right? Yeah, it's, facts, facts, facts. And it's sort of, I feel like this is what we all do. At I mean, in the in the US we talk about this as like, you know, you could the kind of Thanksgiving uncle problem. You know, this is this is sort of the mode we get into. And and Diane recounts in her memoir, she didn't actually know enough to refute the refutation, but she had this feeling of like, I know that it, these refutations are themselves refutable. I don't have the answer, but like nothing was cracking in her armor when they were just coming after her with these other facts. And she kept feeling like, I'm sure someone I know could rebut these things if given the chance, right? So they moved on. They kept talking. At some point, these two women, I believe they're both women, start sharing something that might have seemed quite far afield from the Mooney's Christian cult in America in the 1970s. They start talking about a book about brainwashing techniques in Mao's China. And it was just kind of this like list of techniques, right? And they're reading this to her and she starts to recognize the techniques as being techniques that maybe had been done to her, right? Now, I don't mean to give people 
like false airy hope. But I think it's really important to understand those are two different ways she was being approached. The first way she was being approached kind of more in that replacement vein. You think X, you should throw those thoughts into the trash can. And here on ice are some replacement thoughts that I would like to pump into your brain. That's sort of the vibe of refutation, right? That didn't work. It doesn't work. The next thing, it may sound similar, but it's actually quite different. First of all, it was a situation quite different from the moon. It was China. It was a revolution. It was just different, right? So maybe her defenses were less. This wasn't about cults in a narrow sense. It's just about a whole different kind of thing, right? So maybe the defenses were less up. And it was actually not focused on the substance of her beliefs. Is Christ coming back? When it wasn't focused on that. It was focused on how information is put into people, how people's defenses are broken down by malevolent actors. So it was about the process of thinking in a certain way instead of the thoughts themselves. And she, I think, described it as like feeling like glass break all around her. I mean, she just, on her own, in that moment, she just like realized it was over. She realized she was done. She was out of it. She just saw it so clearly. Now, I can't promise a like made-for-TV result like that at your next family reunion, but I think it points to a different approach that, frankly, most of us are not engaged in right now. Yeah, I, I, I feel it's a very effective approach because, I mean, we've tried so many different angles. You know, anybody in the climate movement, people also, the, the, the vaccine stuff that was happening for quite some time, there was a lot of stalemate. And I think sometimes you do have to kind of jump into a, a, through and look at things through another lens. And I think that's what's so effective about the examples that both Loretta, but also this cult, you know, Diane coming from a cult, it really illustrates super well. Look, a lot of what you do pick up on in terms of what the left is getting wrong, and we are, we're being a bit hard on the left, but I think this is, this is what the left in some ways needs to hear, is that there's so much infighting that can happen. There's these microaggressions that happen within the left that are preventing them from getting going forward and getting a result. And so there's this idea of letting the perfect get in the way of the good. And, you know, I think Loretta picks up on this. She she had a program trying to stop rapists reoffending by educating them on feminism. And she copped lots of blowback from feminists going, that money should actually be put into funding victims, you know, and, and supporting the victims. But you also reference AOC in this slide, you know, and you've got a very large chapter focusing on what she gets so right. But one of the things that she manages to do is to not let her principles, you know, get in the way of getting a result. Can you just talk us a bit about, you know, that piece of the problem with the left? Yeah, I mean, I, and I, I have a, a kind of, I think, a nuanced view here. I think it's important to balance two different things. A lot of what is sometimes called infighting or circular firing squads, whatever, I would defend a lot of it in the sense that it's a sign that you're not in a cult, that people can fight with each other. People can have arguments. You know, I, I think if you look at the abortion movement and the kind of historically white-led organizations and the people of color organizations that have, you know, had less power and influence. I don't think it's just dumb infighting. I think there are real substantive differences. That's a movement that Ross worked in where the demands that black women had around abortion, reproductive justice fights were different than the demands a lot of white women had, right? A lot of white women in the abortion fight 
you know, thought of reproductive justice as the right to an abortion and like we're not interested in thinking about how does immigration policy toward the undocumented affect reproductive opportunity, right? What is it like to carry a, a child and give birth when you're being hounded by the deportation police, right? There, There is a schism within the abortion movement about whether something like immigration cops hounding women is part of a reproductive rights justice conversation or not properly part of that conversation, right? That's not dumb infighting. That's a really important debate. And you can completely see why some might think it should focus on the right to abortion alone and others might think, I don't care if the Supreme Court protects this right. If I'm being hounded by the cops, if I have no money to take care of myself while I'm carrying the child, if I have no union protection to actually have some time off with the child, right? So uh, sometimes what is called infighting on the left is like really substantive, excellent debates that help enlarge our understanding of what we're actually fighting for. And that's good. I think what I'm advocating for in this book is the ability to have those fights. And we're having more and more of them because frankly, women are speaking up about things that women didn't speak up about 30 years ago. And people of color are speaking up about things they took in silence and immigrants and LGBT folks. A lot of people are speaking up today because they're no longer shoved in the kind of shoebox of silence. And so that's good. I'm hugely in favor of people coming out of their shoebox of silence and saying what it's like to be them in the world. I think the challenge is this. How do we hear those voices, harness those things, have those worthy fights, and ambidextrously have the ability to hang together, to coalesce, and have bigger objectives be achieved? Mm. And, and I think for a lot of progressives, there's, you know, AOC talks about this really meaningfully and beautifully in the book, that there's a discomfort with winning. So much of the identity is around not winning and being outwitted by powerful forces, which has often been the case, that when there are victories, one doesn't know how to count them. The music comes on, but one doesn't know how to dance. You know, a very tangible example of this that's been complicated for a lot of progressives is that thanks to extraordinary organizing and action by progressives, thanks to the campaigns of Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and AOC and others, the politics of the United States has changed enough that Joe Biden, a historically relatively moderate Democrat, turned out to be much more progressive, came out of the gate much more progressive than anybody would have ever, ever predicted, was, was trying to tell every reporter who would listen that he wanted to be like FDR, right? Which is, you know, the most kind of policy ambitious president we've had in American history. And so a lot of folks on the left were confused. Well, he's not as progressive as us. What? It's like, no, 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 no. You just won a huge victory. You just turned an 80-year-old white man, moderate Democrat, into sounding like a progressive proposing huge climate legislation, three separate trillion-dollar-plus spending bills in his first year, hiring legions of people from Elizabeth Warren's political orbit and others. Like, you haven't won the full and final victory you wanted, and your candidate is not president. But you have to be able to count your victories. Like, it's, it's an extraordinary victory for progressives. The president Joe Biden turned out to be. And sometimes we don't know how to collect those victories. We don't know how to take them because we're so used to being in the position of being mad at our losses. Mm, and AOC, I think you quote her in the book, talking about, I think it was the Green New Deal, which obviously got replaced by the Inflation Act. But I think you quote her as saying, 
if I had to decide, would I rather have the resolution passed or would I have rather preferred we start a national conversation about the urgency of the climate crisis, I would have chosen the latter every single time. And that, I think, illustrates what you're talking about there. She and and Bernie Sanders and so on got this stuff on the agenda such that we then saw a US president who moved in that direction, maybe not fully as much as, you know, AOC fans would have liked, but that is how change comes about. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think, you know, I think a lot of the AOC chapter in general is about understanding the need to balance different approaches to the world, understanding the need to command attention and pick fights and provoke, as we were talking about earlier, but also be a good coalitional ally, right? And recognizing, and I, I call this in the book, the orchestra principle, recognizing that different people in the movement are supposed to play different roles and that that's okay, right? It's okay for someone to be the rabble rouser and it's okay for someone else to be the gritty deal maker. And it's okay, in my view, for someone to throw whatever liquid was being thrown on paintings at art museums by climate activists. And it's okay for someone else to be trying to work inside corporations to see if they can be changed. That may, None of those may be your theory of change, but they're part of the kind of orchestra of how change is made and that we need in our movements more space and acceptance of other people trying different theories of change than us. A big theme in what you're talking about here is the ability of real change makers, real persuaders being able to play on certain emotions. And often it is fear that is played on and the right, but also particularly the extreme right, do this particularly well and not always with good intentions. And you talk, you actually open the book with the anecdote of these two Russian women who came to America in 2014 ahead of the 2016 election. And I'd love you just to sort of talk through that example, why you put it at the beginning of your book, because it illustrates, I think, a, a really supremely fundamental aspect of persuasion, this idea of playing on emotions. And you make the point, these what these Russian women were doing, it wasn't so much about a discussion about bots and, you know, Russian bot factories and fake accounts that got Americans to believe these outlandish non-truths from these Russian factories. It was about more than that, wasn't it? Yeah, I started this book on persuasion in this kind of unusual way of of talking about a Russian troll campaign and the the famous kind of campaign that where the Russians, you know, had real people in St. Petersburg and elsewhere writing social media posts designed to kind of inflame and and polarize and toxify the American political discourse and political discourses in other countries as well. And I kind of knew the general storyline that the Russians had done this and that the goal was to kind of foment division. And you know, I'm sure the same story you and many of your listeners have heard. But I realized I hadn't really looked at the tweets myself, the social media posts myself. I had just kind of, it had been like a big cloud of abstraction. And so, you know, I'm a writer and a reader and I'm a language person. I thought I should look at the substance of these things. So I, so I dug in to the actual language, which is always a worthy thing to do. And as I started reading the the substance, it seemed to me that it was more than just inflaming division. They were trying to encourage a kind of particular attitude in us, an attitude that we are unpersuadable to each other, that don't even bother, don't even bother with white people, don't even bother with those liberal Marxists, don't even bother with feminists, don't even bother with the vaccine haters, don't even bother with the Black Lives Matter people, don't even bother, right? 
And I was trying to understand this, and it occurred to me that it was so darkly astute and brilliant because they understood division is actually not a big deal, right? People thinking differently is healthy. It's fine, right? We, we talk a lot about division and polarization. I, I think they're both overblown as problems. It's fine for people to be far apart. These are very hard questions. Don't even bother. That is the end of democracy. I do not believe polarization is the end of democracy. I believe don't even bother is the end of democracy. Fatalism is the end of democracy, right? You and I could stand very far apart in immigration, but if I fundamentally view you as someone who could come around if you hear my brilliant idea, I think we're, we're okay. Our democracy will survive. The, the far apartness of our stance doesn't matter, right? But if we're relatively close, you want a full wall and I, I want only a partial wall, if I think you are someone who is basically beneath the reach of reason and effort, it doesn't matter that we're not so far apart. I basically don't view you as someone I can help choose the future with. And therefore, I don't view you as my kind of co-pilot in democracy. And that is the view that I think the Russians sought to stoke. And you have to remember, this is a highly skilled adversarial foreign intelligence service. Their best wager on what could bring American democracy to its knees was cultivating in us the widespread attitude of don't even bother. It's such a fundamental point. And it reminds me of what goes on with relationships. Marriage counsellors will often say, look, we don't have a problem if the two of you are engaging in robust argument. We have a problem when one or both of you has a complete contempt and disregard and, as you say, can't even be bothered can't be bothered to to swing the relationship to a better place. And that... Yeah, I always say it's, it's not the couples who fight you should be worried about. It's the couples who don't fight that you should be worried about. And I think the same is true of democracy. I actually think we're yelling through the media, but most Americans are no longer really engaged in these kind of political discussions, right? And so that's the fatalism that I'm talking about. Just like not even, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. And this book is a passionate plea to say it's not worth it, it's not a politics, and we're going to lose democracy if we allow that idea to take hold. Mm. And we're having this conversation, obviously, at a time when there's a terrible conflict happening over in Israel and Palestine, and you've got the, the atrocities of war and they are big and real. But on top of this, you've also got a persuasion war going on, on social media, but also at the leadership level. And... I think a lot of listeners would agree with me, we're all sitting there going, oh my goodness, how do we make sense of this? Do we bother? You know, at what point do we bother? Are we, you know, there's a lot of noise. A lot of this idea that you just referred to with the Russian bots, this idea of creating this bewilderment and disgust with each other, that is what can tear a world apart. Have you got any thoughts on what's happening over there or what's happening amongst us all globally as we bear witness to these atrocities that you're seeing through the lens of this persuasion concept? I mean, the, the one thing I will say is this conflict, as I've watched it from the United States, it has brought out what I would say is the worst conversational environment I can remember in many years, which is to say the capacity of virtually anybody to have thoughtful conversation to send and receive transmissions with any kind of openness at all is almost zero. It's just incredibly disappointing. I see so much 
performative maximalism. I see people who are completely unable to receive facts and information that may dent their preconceived notions. I see people who essentially their posture is that this ongoing tragedy, every event happens to vindicate what they've always thought all along on all sides of this question. And it's a great example and a very horrific example of how we can't solve these problems if we can't even talk about these problems. And talking about them is a skill. And being able to have a view of the world and a stance and an ideology and a commitment to your people, but at the same time be able to speak with openness and curiosity about the world and about politics and with a sense that maybe you don't know everything, it's so important. And I think we're seeing the real-life consequences of what happens when societies are literally unwilling and unable, incapable of just talking about things, talking about the future, having any kind of discussion animated by questions more than answers. Yeah, Nand, that's a very, very sound point. And, you know, I've obviously been researching for this conversation as all of this has been happening, but also as something very large in Australia has been playing out, and that is the repercussions, the upshot of a referendum to to recognise First Nations peoples in, in our constitution, which came back with a no vote, very much the result of a negative misinformation campaign that's been quite widely recognised as being the case. And, you know, it's not a debate I expect you to be entirely on top of, but I'm seeing so much of what's happening in the world. It's kind of secondary layer. You've got the original pain and tragedy and horror and the stuff that's making the headlines, but then you've got this secondary layer where we are unable to communicate, we're unable to persuade each other to better and kinder positions. And yeah, the framework that you provide in your book, I've I've really found very helpful and I encourage people to get hold of your book. It's, it's been out for a, a little while now. It's very recent. In Australia, I think it's just been released and published. And of course, they can also follow you on your Substack where you write about this kind of thing on a regular basis. Anand, thank you so much for this conversation. I wish you all the best with navigating the world and protecting democracy as we go forward in this, these crazy, crazy times. Well, thank you so much. I really, really enjoyed the conversation. There were a whole bunch of things in that conversation with Anand that I found both useful and immediately usable in my thinking on a whole range of subjects at the moment. The first is this idea that persuading even going hard and getting heated is not something we should, you know, veer away from. Storytelling is a very legitimate way of engaging people and getting good results that people often really want once their fear and confusion is recognised. Plus, this idea of kind of watering things down to a middle ground often causes more problems it will stigmatise the issue. It will feed into the hard right fear-mongering, the very fear-mongering that we're trying to persuade people away from. The second thing that I pick up here is that there is an opportunity here for activists and leaders, all of us who have a Thanksgiving uncle, as Anand refers to it. We can own the joyous, fun, enlivening story. Anand uses the example in his work of a 14-year-old trans kid who's fighting for his rights, you know, out there in a conservative state. And he says that it can be spun in all kinds of ways, but also spun as a story of bravery, of a kid fighting for his freedom. 
Anand and I talk about Loretta Ross's work quite a bit, and she had this wonderful quote, you can't change other people. You can't even change the person you're married to, but you can help people. You can expose people to different information and help them learn, if you do so with love. Anand makes the point elsewhere in the book, citing various studies on cognitive dissonance, that fear sees people skew right. But when they feel compassion and common cause with their fellow humans, they will tend to skew left. So you can reverse engineer this, right? If you have a progressive cause that you're trying to get across to people, the best way to sell it in, to persuade, is with a compassionate story that unifies around common cause. This really does present an incredible opening for many of us who are despairing about the hijacking of storytelling by the far right. As I often say in these kinds of conversations, true change happens when we make the new way of doing things sexier than the status quo. And Anand writes in a similar way in his book, we need to paint the beautiful tomorrow, which I think is just a beautiful line. Finally, I find myself applying so much of what he said in that conversation to where we've landed following the voice referendum in Australia. There are many people dissecting the outcome, you know, and how the no campaign ultimately won. There's a big part of the community who are citing fact-checking agencies that say the win came about from an ability to capitalise on misinformation, working to a story of fear. And the line, if you don't know, vote no, speaks to that very much. The no campaign was able to persuade the large majority of soft no's and soft yeses, so people who remained undecided right up to the voting day. The Yes campaign, I feel, was somewhat divided. Many spent a lot of energy countering the misinformation claims and genuine confusion with facts and details. But many of the First Nations groups were also pushing to steer things to a more loving story, and I saw this in so many instances. They were trying to paint a picture of a more beautiful tomorrow for Australia. Sadly, I think this messaging got drowned out. And I've learned a lesson myself from all of this and from Anand's thesis. If you've got a progressive idea, compassion and common cause is what works best. Facts and fear-based stuff, not so much, which is really quite wild and exciting for all of us moving forward. This episode might be a good one to share with anyone despairing at the moment. Activists, leaders in your circle, we really do need to be coalescing around more loving, persuasive stories at the moment, I feel. Okay, until next week, please stay wild. Listener.